0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. And with one bound, our heroes were free. Have Conservative MPs suddenly come up with a plan to guarantee a smooth Brexit and save their own party? Hmm, Possibly not, but there is a new Brexit proposal during the rounds that is causing some excitement in Westminster. Dennis Daunton, our London editor, would have more on a very fast moving Brexit story. But first today, we're looking at the political and economic crisis in Venezuela and the power struggle between sitting President Nicolas Maduro and Juan Guaido, the man who is trying to unseat him with the support of the United States and some other powerful international backers. Tom Hennigan, our correspondent in South America, joins me now from Sao Paulo. Uh, Tom, this crisis came to a head last week when Juan Guaido, the the head of the Venezuelan National Assembly, declared himself interim president of Venezuela, this, uh then to the surprise, I suppose, of a lot of people around the world, he was almost immediately recognised as president by the Trump administration in Washington. And we know some other countries then followed suit, Canada, Brazil, Argentina among them. Uh, Maduro, of course, is his own international backer. So we've quite a standoff here, both internally and, and externally. Um, before we get into where the story might be going next, what are the latest developments?
1: Well, um, today, really, Venezuela, um, both the the Maduro and the Guaido administration are digesting the announcement by the U.S. that they're going to impose sanctions on Venezuela's oil industry. And um, throughout 20 years of the uh, Chavista experiment in Venezuela, um, despite at times huge antagonism between Caracas and Washington, the U.S. never moved against the Venezuelan oil industry, and now they they have made that step and it comes at a moment when oil is pretty much the only hard currency earner that uh, Venezuela still has left. It is the only thing it has to pay for desperately needed imports of foods and medicines to try and contain the already very grave social crisis there. Um, And unfortunately for the Maduro administration, oil production is in in steep decline. So uh, Venezuela, despite having the biggest oil reserves in the world, is is pumping only half the amount of oil it did as recently as as 2016. And to further complicate uh, the situation for the Maduro regime, that the U.S. is the only country essentially that pays for its oil imports from Venezuela. So, the rest of, of Venezuelan production um, is earmarked to pay off debts, mainly from Russia and China, that uh, that the Chavista regime ran up when the oil price was high and they were convinced it would stay high forever. And they used the cash to fund their lavish so- social programs to um, essentially keep the, themselves in power. And uh, now that the oil price has declined significantly, that the uh, Venezuela's own production has declined uh, significantly, that a lot of it uh, doesn't even generate any revenue for them. They became very dependent on the one country that they were trying to get, the Chavistas were trying to get out from under, which was the U.S. And yesterday's announcement that uh, any U.S. company buying Venezuelan oil will have those payments frozen and kept in the U.S., that basically means that the last source of hard cash that the Venezuelans um, had access to is now under threat um, and obviously uh, President Maduro has taken to the airwaves to say that this is um, criminal behaviour but uh, Guaido, the uh, uh, self-declared President and um, Leader of the Opposition He has come out and says that he welcomes the move. It's a way of protecting the assets of the Venezuelan people from the mismanagement and corruption of the Chavista regime. So that's really been the big news um, in Venezuela so far today.
0: And Tom, I think a couple of the things you said there would surprise a lot of listeners, um, particularly that the US is the only country that pays for its oil imports from Venezuela. And these are the first sanctions imposed by the US on on the Venezuelan oil industry, because it's it's almost a self-evident truth among supporters of the Maduro regime abroad that U.S. sanctions are the reason why the Venezuelan economy has suffered the terrible collapse it has suffered over the past number of years.
1: Absolutely. And that is a line that has been always um, first given out by the uh, administration in Caracas. They've tried to frame um, the whole situation as a as a revolutionary uprising against the American empire as uh, Chavez, the the founder of Chavismo always used to refer to the U S as the empire and the evil empire to the north. Um, But the reality is, is that the U S has actually until yesterday had very selective, Sanctions against Venezuela, mostly against named leaders within the administration that it accused of corruption, embezzlement, drug trafficking, and whatnot. Um, and last year, towards the end of last year, it started tightening up the access of the the government in Caracas to the international financial system, which the Americans said that Chavistas were using to launder money that it was looting from the state. Um, but the reality is that, despite what Maduro and the supporters both at home and abroad say there is no embargo against Venezuela. There are sanctions, but they're quite targeted. Uh, there is no one um, prevented from shipping food and medicines to the country. Um, the US has never moved against the oil industry. Uh, Venezuela is, even though it has declined significantly, is still a major supplier to the US and, and the US uh, administrations in Washington, including until recently the Trump administration, always gave out two lines. One is that they didn't want to move against the oil industry for fear that it would cause a total collapse in Venezuela. Um, And also because for the US, there was always the risk uh, that it would lead to a spike at the the pumps, which no politician um, would like to do. So the US never never moved against it. And uh, because... The, the Chavistas ran up huge debts in in the years of of the, of the golden years of the oil price when it was above $140 a barrel. They borrowed money hand over fist, and the clash they put up for that was future oil um, future oil shipments. So uh, really, the US, which was not obviously lending um, its rivals in Caracas money, it was paying cash up front. And, and remains do, uh, to do so, as where all the other shipments, nearly all the other shipments that go abroad are against money that has been loaned already, and it has to be said squandered. So by moving um, against, to prevent sales to the US, the the Venezuelans will now have to find a new market for that oil, which is around 500,000 barrels a day that the US was buying. But there's another problem for them, is that if it was light sweet crude could sell that very easily on the open market they would find multiple customers for that but venezuelan crude is a very viscous um, type that needs specialized refineries to to refine it those refineries uh, traditionally around the gulf coast of mexico should be close to the uh, oil fields on the other side of the caribbean and the only countries really with the refining capacity to step in and buy that type of uh, Venezuelan crew that the Americans are now going to try and shut down going to the US or China and India. And uh, it, it, they will be discounting uh, those uh, increased shipments against debts rather than paying cash for it.
0: And, and uh, Tom, in spite of everything you've just said, it, it, it is difficult not to see the US's hand involved in this latest turn of events, isn't it, where you have Uh, Juan Guaido the the young man 35 year old president of the National Assembly declares himself president and the speed with which Washington responded it it does give um, support to the idea doesn't it that that there was some coordination involved here
1: there was coordination uh, undoubtedly but I would say that the main um, coordination was with other uh, American nations gathered in the Lima group um, which is headed by Canada Mexico Brazil Argentina Chile Peru, and they have been trying to take a lead on finding an exit from the Venezuelan crisis Um, and the Venezuela group, along with the Organization of American States, the main regional body in uh, the Americas, uh, the United Nations as well, the European Union have all refused to recognize um, elections in recent years in Venezuela because they do not meet the basic standard of being free and fair. So um, the background is is that the last election that was generally considered reasonably fair was in 2015, and that resulted in a crushing opposition victory. They totally took over the National Assembly with a supermajority. That was a direct threat against Chavismo, and so Maduro called a constitutional assembly to rewrite Chavismo's own constitution. And that election took place in 2017. Since then, uh, from the UN on down, most multilateral uh, organizations have described the the situation in, in Venezuela as authoritarian and anti-democratic. Last year's presidential election for Maduro uh, in May, they all refused to recognize that as well, as did the opposition, uh, the main part of which refused to uh, take part in it. So the opposition's position, and this seems to have been coordinated with the with the Lima group, and the Trump administration seems to have jumped Um, on on board as well, because it suited their own um, interests uh, vis-a-vis Venezuela, was that Maduro was an illegitimate president. And therefore, according to Chavismo's own constitution uh, that was proclamated in 1999, that if the executive is vacant, the National Assembly becomes the executive, governing executive power in the country, and its president becomes the interim president. So according to the opposition and the countries in the region, that there is a constitutional basis for this. Again, Maduro and his supporters home and abroad have been dismissing this as a U.S. coup. But really, the Trump administration has uh, backed Guiado, um, but at the same time, Guiado and his his opposition in group in Venezuela have been working with the region to try and give a semblance of constitutional order to what is happening. And they are saying, according to Chavismo's own constitution, the presidency, when it is vacant, falls to the president of the National Assembly. And they're justifying uh, the declaring the presidency vacant by citing the rejection of the constitutional assembly election and the uh, presidential election of last year that Maduro said he won by everyone from the United Nations on down. So that's the justification for it. So the idea that it's some sort of um, plot where DC identified a puppet that they could put up to try and, and pull down Maduro is a, is a gross oversimplification.
0: Now, the European Union, Tom, has taken a slightly more cautious approach. Um, it supports calls for new elections. Um but a stop short of, of recognising Guaido as president just for the moment, at least. Um, how do you think the international community can actually best help the Venezuelan people here? Because, I mean, these are the people, we've 90% of people that are living in poverty, many of them don't have enough to eat. And if ever there was a case maybe where international intervention may possibly is required or where the international community needs to take an interest, this is it. But what what can they do?
1: very difficult uh, to know um especially as uh, Maduro um has made quite clear that he absolutely rejects demands made by those demands made by Europe and the European Union for new ele- elections he's totally totally um ruled that out um he's obviously not going to accept um any uh, brokerage by by Washington either um he has pretty much barred his last hardcore allies, and um, the likes of Nicaragua, Cuba, and and Bolivia, um, he has very tenuous relations now with the rest of the region. So it would be hard to see how some of the regional bodies would be able to to negotiate. Um, so it is it it is difficult to see a a exit from the impasse, and that I, I believe is one of the reasons that so many people um, are looking at the military and trying to work out what is going on within the various services, um, what is their real attitude to the crisis, to um, maintaining their support from Maduro, and is there any chance that they would abandon them? Because, and I think that's a reflection of the the lack of confidence people have in some kind of negotiated resolution. And uh,
0: Tom, just tell us something about Juan Guaido, because from an international point of view, he sort of rose without trace, if you like. Um, what's his background?
1: He's um, a thirty-five year old, so relatively young for um, both Venezuelan politics and the scale of the crisis. Um, he was only fifteen when Chavez came to power. That's part of his appeal for the opposition that he um, can in no way be linked to the old politics that was so rejected in Venezuela um, and that helped pave the way for Chávez's rise to power in the late 90s. Um, He uh, is a protégé of one of the leaders of the opposition who was jailed by um, the regime, uh, Leopoldo López. He's closely identified with him, but he's seen as someone who has shown despite his youth a capacity to negotiate with all the different factions within the opposition and there are many of them and they're often quite antagonistic and keeping them together has um broken other opposition leaders during the 20 years of um the of of chavismo so he he's young he's not well known he only took over the national assembly formally on the 5th of January and very shortly afterwards, six days later, was acclaimed as the de facto president of the country. So he is something of of an unknown quantity, particularly to um, people outside the country who are um, curious as to if the opposition did win, what would be its attitude? For example, the opposition in the past has said that a lot of the debts that Chavismo ran up with uh, Russia and China, it would not honour those obligations. So uh, there's, I think, quite a lot of interest in trying to find out exactly what uh, Guaido um his stance is on, on issues like that.
0: And you mentioned there, Tom, his mentor, Leopoldo López, who is under house arrest. Now, if they succeed in, in uh, seeing out this transition and, and there is a transition of, of power, is Guaidó now sort of the de facto, you know, uh, leader, likely next president of Venezuela or presumably Leopoldo López hasn't given up his own ambitions?
1: Well, that's a that's a very good question. Um, and uh, the the reality is, is that Uh, Chavismo is the only thing that has imposed any sort of unity on the opposition. But that even even in the face of um, the challenge that has fluctuated. There have been fallings out. Um, Some of its leaders um, have um, argued bitterly with each other. And there is a suspicion and a worry among some opposition supporters that should Maduro quit the stage, that uh, the the United Opposition Front would crumble very quickly and you could be into um, a a, a scramble to to fill the vacuum. And how that would work out um, is is unclear. Um, And as you say, uh, Guaidó is the opposition's current face, both domestically and internationally. But should this transition work out in their favour, I think it is safe to assume that other opposition figures will think, well, now we can thank him, shuffle them off the stage and um, resume our own internal bickering, but this time with the prize being the presidency.
0: And, and Tom, finally, how do you see things unfolding from here? I'm not necessarily asking you to, to predict the outcome, but what are the potential scenarios now?
1: Well, the worst scenario is the military splits and um, there is an armed conflict in the country. Um, in the last couple of years, there have been um isolated attempts at um, uprisings by military officers. About half of the 200 or so political prisoners in the country um, identified as such by the opposition, they are actually military figures. Um, so that would be the worst case scenario that, that the military would split and there could be some sort of, of conflict. Um, another scenario is, and this can't be ruled out, is that Chavismo rides out the storm and that Maduro manages to hang on to power um, you know, the the Bolivarian revolution has been written off many times before and has this amazing capacity to bounce back. Um the circumstances have changed now, it is now out of cash when the before it had plenty of it to throw around and buy support, it's running out of international allies. Um and so it's a it's a different situation, but that can't be completely ruled out either. But I think one of the things to keep in mind is that the devastation to the country's economy and social fabric is so great. Um, and the the wasting of what was once one of the world's biggest oil industries has been on such a scale that should Maduro leave, there's no quick turnaround for Venezuela. Uh, if, if he goes, there's, it's going to be an awful long climb out of the, the well that it's fallen into um, so i don't uh, i think there's a, a whole range of possible scenarios that are being discussed but none of them um, have a kind of a quick return to any sort of health for venezuela itself
0: tom thank you you're listening to the irish times That was Tom Hennigan in Sao Paulo. Next, it's Brexit. And today, Tuesday, MPs in London will begin voting on a series of amendments on how Prime Minister Theresa May should proceed with Brexit after the overwhelming defeat of her deal with the EU earlier this month. Dennis Staunton, our London editor, joins me now from there. Um, Dennis, it's been an eventful day so far in Westminster and and potentially more drama to come. Um, What's what's the latest?
2: Theresa May has just started this debate on a motion on what to do next about Brexit and she has told MPs that she is going to go to uh, the European Union and ask for changes to the text of the withdrawal agreement so that the backstop can be rewritten, the Northern Ireland backstop, the guarantee that there won't be any return to a hard border. She says she wants to find other ways of guaranteeing that there's no hard border, that she's completely committed to not having that hard border, but she is um, she's going to look at other, at other options. Now, this move to actually say that she's going to change or seek changes to the actual text of the withdrawal agreement. That's something that she said only a couple of weeks ago was going to be impossible. But uh, it it was the price of getting the support of the DUP and of hardline Brexiteers. So while she was speaking, uh, Nigel Dodds, the leader at Westminster of the DUP, he stood up and made an intervention to make clear that he will support her. And supporting her will take the form of voting in favour of an amendment which has been tabled by Graham Brady, who's the chairman of the 1922 Committee of Backbench Conservative MPs. And this says this House will accept the withdrawal agreement on condition that uh, the backstop is replaced by alternative arrangements to ensure that the border remains open. And so it seems that this is going to be enough to bring over the DUP and Most, if not all, of the hardline Brexiteers, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson. And that should ensure that uh,
0: she is likely, she's on course to get a majority for that particular vote tonight. And then it's given everything that has been said repeatedly on the record by um, Michel Barnier, by the Irish government, by everybody involved in this process that the withdrawal agreement is not open for renegotiation, that the backstop in particular is not open for renegotiation. And and Theresa May herself was saying that only a couple of weeks ago, as you said. Is this not a a dead end she's now going down?
2: It certainly would appear to be so. What she said in response to that argument uh, just now was uh, for two years people have been saying that the European Union wouldn't. bend on this or budge on that. And actually, during the process of negotiations, they have made concessions on various points that people said they wouldn't. And so she says that if she can go there uh, with uh, a majority behind her so that she can answer the question, what is it that you need to be able to secure a majority for the deal, that puts her in a stronger position. Now, one other thing that happened overnight was, and this was a surprise to most people, was that a group of conservative Remainers and Brexiteers and some of the leading figures like the former Education Secretary, uh, uh, Nikki Morgan, who has rebelled, Against the government as a remainer, a number of times, she, on the one hand, and people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Steve Baker, uh, on the other, they have come together with a new proposal of how what they would do with the backstop, and that is that they would replace it with um, various. Kind of customs arrangements, including technology, including uh, other administrative means of making customs easier, uh, a tariff free zone between the UK and the European Union, and then an option to have a transition. Uh, an extended transition period without having the withdrawal agreement, all kinds of things which, frankly, have been ruled out individually and together a number of times a number of months ago by the European Union. But in the House of Commons this afternoon, the Prime Minister said she welcomed these suggestions. She didn't quite say she was going to make these her policy, but she was certainly very flattering about them. And she said she would sit down with uh, all of these uh, members of her party and uh, see what could be done in terms of making a reality of these. But your question is absolutely right. The European Union have made very clear The withdrawal agreement cannot be reopened. What they've said is we can talk about all kinds of assurances about the backstop. And they've even hinted they could have some kind of legally binding uh, codicil attached to the treaty. But that the actual withdrawal agreement, the text is closed and it can't be reopened. So we just have to see what happens if she does go over to Brussels
0: and says, look, this is what my parliament needs and I have the proof. With this majority. And this new plan, Dennis, you just mentioned that the Brexiteers and, and some of the, on the pro EU side have come together on, I think it's known as the Malthouse plan. It's named after one of the protagonists involved. But um, does it offer some kind of way out of this uh, uh, crisis, or is that just another sort of um, illusion or, or, or self delusion on the part of the people involved? Uh-
2: I think it doesn't appear to offer a way out uh, of the crisis insofar as, you know, the the whole idea of using a technological solution to the border. It has been rejected uh, because it's been explored. Basically, Sabina Vyant, the... Um, the deputy chief negotiator for the EU, said it yesterday. It's not that we're against any of this technology. It's just that this technology doesn't exist. These alternative arrangements do not exist. If they were, if, if they did exist, we'd be prepared to look at them. The other thing is that some of the proposals in this, uh, they're, they're, they're really about having a kind of a managed no deal. And they're also, in other areas, they're talking about crossing all kinds of EU red lines to do with the integrity of the single market and single market rules. So on a whole number of different levels, these proposals, this so-called Malthouse compromise, is just not acceptable to the European Union. I think, though, that uh, if Theresa May does emerge from tonight with a majority in favour of something, then even if this idea is daft, the fact is that she has something at least to go to the European Union with, and she can then work from the daftness outwards or inwards or towards some kind of... uh, a more sane compromise. And I think the other significance of getting the uh, Eurosceptics to vote in favour of an amendment like this is that it makes clear and says explicitly our only problem is the backstop. And if you change the backstop, then we can support the withdrawal agreement. And, uh, and so that's something that they haven't been prepared to do so far, because many of them had other problems, like we don't want to pay £39 billion pounds in return for not very much or whatever, you know, all kinds of different objections. So this at least is specific. And so if you get it, get it down to just the backstop, and even if she can't deliver exactly what they want in terms of legal guarantees on the backstop, as time the time uh, you know gets closer in terms of the deadline it may be that some kinds of concessions that wouldn't do the trick today would actually be
0: enough in a few weeks time and Dennis, just finally the, the one other amendment of course much discussed over the past couple of days was yvette cooper's amendment um, which would um if a deal wasn't done by i think 26th of february then um mps would would um be allowed would be enabled to, to delay brexit by possibly up to nine months well, what's the latest on on that
2: The reason on that is that it's looking uh, quite good for Yvette Cooper in terms of getting that amendment through because the Labour leadership said that they would whip Labour MPs uh, to support that amendment. And so uh, so there's a a good chance that, uh, and also just uh, one of the peculiarities of the the system is that if that amendment is voted uh, early, so so in other words, people have a chance to vote for uh, Yvette Cooper's amendment before uh, they vote for various other amendments. And so that probably gives it a better chance of Success because all kinds of people who want, who would will that end, uh, aren't sure that they uh, might be able to get it by one other means or another. And so they, they might be more inclined to vote for the amendment. What it would mean would be that uh, in those circumstances, if there is no deal by the February the February 26th, that the Parliament can instruct the government. To seek an extension of the Article 15 negotiation. Originally she wanted nine months but uh, the deal she's done with the Labour leadership is to bring that back to three months which would mean that uh, it would be an extension up to the end of June.
0: And again actually just so that we're back to the likely EU response and I know you're you're talking to people in Brussels as well. Would a three-month extension be acceptable?
2: Well, what you'd hear from Brussels is if there's nothing automatic about it. We don't really want to uh, extend the deadline for no reason. It's just putting off the evil day. But at the same time, when you really... Uh, drill down into it. It's pretty clear that the Europeans are prepared to, and they will be prepared under almost any circumstances. I think to offer an extension up to the end of June because it means that uh, that the extension would be finished before the new MEPs from this year's uh, European parliamentary elections take their seats on the 2nd of July. So that means that there wouldn't be the complication of having to have MEPs elected in Britain uh, for a parliament that they wouldn't be sitting in or wouldn't be sitting in for very long. So I think uh, a three-month extension would be pretty straightforward. And I think even if there was no sign of a deal, I think that the Europeans would probably be inclined to say, OK, we're not going to... Uh, to to look too mean about this but this really is the last chance saloon and then you're out
0: Dennis thank you that's all for this week you can continue to follow Irish Times coverage of events at Westminster on Tuesday night through our live blog on irishtimes.com thanks for listening goodbye for now